It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, February 25th, 2024. I'm Jared Halpern. Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its third year as Congress grapples with how much more the U.S. will commit to the war effort. We really are working, hoping, praying that Congress will provide us with so much needed supplementary funding so that Pentagon and other uh, departments can continue doing what they've done in 2023. And senators are getting ready for jury duty once again this time for a historic trial of a cabinet secretary. See, there's a lot of political opportunity (laughs) in an impeachment trial for both sides, especially when it comes to an issue that is is as seminal as the border, uh, especially in an election year. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The war in Ukraine entered its third year yesterday, a milestone met with a massive sanctions package from President Biden targeting individuals, the military industrial base and revenue sources across multiple continents. Kiev is still standing. Ukraine is still free and the people of Ukraine remain unbowed and unbroken in the face of Putin's vigorous onslaught. That is due, the president says, to the bravery of the Ukrainian people in hard-fought battles by Ukraine's military. But it's also due, he says, to a steady flow of American weapons that has stopped after a security package providing $60 billion for Ukraine stalled in the House of Representatives. History's watching. The clock is ticking. Brave Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are dying. Russia. Russia is taking Ukraine territory for the first time in many months. Rebecca Grant is the president of Iris Research, a defense consulting firm. She is a former member of the air staff at the Pentagon advising Air Force leaders. I asked her if renewed U.S. aid can make a difference in a war that has become bogged down and increasingly deadly. Well, a big difference in one word would be air power. Grant also says U.S. and Western aid to Ukraine was too slow initially with too many limits and restrictions. You you mentioned some of the restrictions that that the Biden administration and other international partners have kind of put on that Ukraine, maybe not overtly, but certainly sort of tacitly, that they don't want these weapons to be used to strike inside Russian territory. Do you see that changing as this war now moves into its third year? Well, two years in, let's get over our fear of Russian escalation. You know, footnote, we know that China doesn't want Russia to escalate. So by caving into that over the last two years, we've missed a lot of good chances to have Ukraine dominate that battlefield. I think that there are plenty of Russian military forces on Ukraine's territory for Ukraine to attack. I do not see any concern that Ukraine is suddenly going to use Western assistance to push into Russia. They want to push Russians out of Ukraine, not push into Russia. So I think we need to set that aside, stop worrying about these escalation concerns and give them the strategy and the weapons and assistance they need to win. 
What do you think Russian defeat looks like? It, I mean, listening to, to Putin, it doesn't sound, I mean, they, they've got the means to kind of just throw all kinds of resources at this war. Yes. And uh, Putin likes this war, especially with his presidential election coming up. And this war has reshaped geopolitics. It's brought Iran and North Korea and China closer to Russia. So that's a, a terrible problem. Uh, but uh, to me, Russian defeat, well, you know, the, I'd like to see them lose Crimea. Remember the last peace offer on the table from almost two years ago now was that Russian forces would pull back and Crimea would go into a 10-year status. You know, in every way that Putin cares about, he's already lost. NATO is so much stronger. No NATO nation will forget this for a generation. We are going to be arming against Russia for the next 20 years or longer, no question. And so I think, you know, they've already, they're not going to win, but a Russian defeat has to look like them losing some of the territory they hold, particularly down in the south around some of those Black Sea ports. Support, at least in polls, is strong among Americans for Ukraine. A survey done about a week ago by Pew Research found 75 percent of Americans view the war in Ukraine as important to U.S. national interest. Forty three percent say it is very important, though in December, three in 10 Americans in another Pew survey said the U.S. is providing too much assistance to Ukraine. About half said the U.S. support is about right or not enough. And that's what Congress, specifically the House, is contending with. Some Republicans want to see that package that also provides aid to Israel and Taiwan include tougher immigration and border provisions. Others still are expressing concern about the price tag. Since the invasion, lawmakers have approved about $100 billion in Ukraine aid, most of it in weapons and other military assets, but also aid for refugees and for the country to keep its government operating. For those with concerns about the U.S. commitment, they ask for a plan about how Ukraine can win the war or make significant gains in a war that looks like a stalemate and how long the U.S. should keep providing assistance. Is there a plan for an eventual peace? What does a post-war government look like in Kiev or in Moscow? Those are questions I asked Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Marakova, on the eve of the two-year anniversary of the war. Let me start with this question, because I think it is one that has been asked a lot, and I'm sure you have heard it as you've talked with uh, journalists and talked with lawmakers. And that is uh, now two years on from this invasion. Um, can Ukraine win this war against Russia? Well, the short answer is yes, we can. Uh, you know, Russia attacked us 10 years ago and then reinvaded us two years ago. And during these two years, we have shown that contrary to Russian propaganda or their expectations, and even contrary to some expectations, even of our friends, we did not fall in three days, we did not fall in three months. We liberated more than 50% of what Russia occupied. We cleared the Black Sea. Just today, you know, we, we again continue uh, shooting down the aircrafts and everything else. It's just a function of weapons. Ukrainians are still even though tired, of course, after two years of full-fledged war, but still motivated and unbroken, and we will keep defending our land. And it's just a, qu a question of weapons and continued support, and we can win this war. Uh, one of the, uh, 
the, the concerns that I've heard is that especially lately over the last several months, it really feels like this has evolved in the sort of, I guess, what you would call trench warfare, kind of a stalemate. Um, what is your assessment kind of a, of the current situation um, in fighting on the front um, and kind of what that strategy looks like? Well, Jared, it has been a very much World War II, World War I type of war since the very beginning. Let's remind uh, all the Americans that when Russia attacked us in the morning of February 24th, 2022, not only did they cross the border from north, south, and east, they also started with all the missiles attacks, which then were supplemented with the uh, Shahid drones uh, they are purchasing from Iran now and another missiles from North Korea. But they, it has been a very much artillery dual focused war everywhere. And yet, when we have at least parity of weapons, even sometimes when we have less, but not as less as now, you know, in, in this recent uh, battle in Avdiivka in the Eastern Front, mm-hmm. at most we, the, 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 the ratio of uh, artillery munition was six to one. Uh, but, you know, in, of course, Russia had more. Um, so so it, it is very difficult. They are using against us everything that they have. And yet we were able to liberate 50 percent even without air superiority, even in times when during these two, two years we did not have a superiority in, in any types of capabilities. But right now, of course, we are running out of some of them. So it's a very pivotal time. And it, you know, it's time to actually continue doing what worked. Because again, it's not just about Ukraine. It's not just our territorial integrity that needs to be restored. It's not just our children and civilians who needs to be saved. It's the international law that Russia broken. It's the rules which we all believe and live by, which they are challenging now. And other dictators are watching. How much of, you know, you mentioned, obviously, uh, some of the setbacks and and you've made progress, too, I know, with with the air defense capabilities. But how much of that do you attribute to kind of this ratcheted down uh, support from the U.S.? Obviously, that that is a big issue that Congress is facing, this uh, aid package that would supply about 60 billion dollars in weapons, that flow of weapons that has uh, been consistent since uh, February uh, two years ago uh, has stopped. How how critical is that in uh, arming your military? Uh, Jared, we had three stages uh, of this war. At the beginning of uh, when Russia invaded us, we still had a number of our own supplies, you know, from a Soviet type of supplies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we urgently needed new supplies. And, and the first stage of the war was kind of difficult. The second stage, when Congress and American people so generously supported us, when European nations really increased their production and started helping us in 2022, end of 2022, beginning of 2023, when, that's when we started receiving so much more. And we started advancing very quickly. You know, we liberated not only Kiev Oblast, but Kharkiv Oblast and Kherson. It was like every week there were news about liberating because that was at the time when the supply of weapons was steady. Now we're in the situation when, yes, we are producing a lot of our own Ukrainian-made drones. And frankly, you know, the success in the Black Sea with Ukrainian naval uh, drones has been uh, thanks to our Ukrainian producers, but we still need 
a lot of support from the U.S. and other European allies with regard to artillery and air defense and everything. And we 100% depend on it now. So um, it's, you know, again, we're very grateful for the support, for everything. We, we will always be grateful to the American people for this support. But now it's time to stay the course. So we really are working, hoping, praying that Congress will provide us with so much needed supplementary funding so that Pentagon and other uh, departments can continue doing what they've done in 2023. I'm sure you have heard it from uh, Americans and, and others that you've spoken to, this concern about, you know, $60 billion at a time where, uh, you know, the United States is facing challenges. Uh, what is your message to, to U.S. taxpayers who, who wonder, you know, should this money, this kind of investment uh, be made to, to Ukraine? Well, first of all, as the former minister of finance and and the financier myself, uh, I believe that taxpayers' money you always have to be very careful and very responsible with. And Ukraine has been spending this support in a very effective and very transparent and responsible manner. Uh, we also have to know that it's the budget support, which is uh, you know uh, a smaller portion of the support that we receive as money into our budget, and we report and check and audit by uh, the American auditors uh, on a regular basis. But in this supplementary package, which uh, was, for example, voted by the Senate, mm -hmm. it's about 7.8 billion of the budget support. All the rest is the defense spending is either spent here or in Europe uh, for the American uh, forces or creating jobs here, producing uh, equipment that, again, we are very grateful for. So it's actually investment into Ukraine is a very transparent, very effective. It, it's also an investment into the U.S., but also it's investment into all of our collective security because we are defending, of course, our homes. Of course, it's existential for us, but we're also defending our NATO allies, in Europe, and we are defending the Black Sea, which is very important for not only for Ukraine, but for, for other partners. And we are also defending democracy, as big as it sounds, against an autocratic terroristic regime that is doing it together with Iran, together with North Korea, together with all the enemies of the free world. So it's ultimately a question whether we democracies can stay together united and show that we can defend ourselves. I know we started this conversation by me asking you if Ukraine can ultimately win this war, and you emphatically said yes. I am curious kind of what does that look like? Um, you know, is there a possibility uh, with peace, uh, for peace with Russia? What, what, what is sort of the post-war Ukraine-Russia relationship look like? Jared, it's, it's a simple and difficult question at the same time. On the one hand, we're dealing with an enemy which is brutal, does not have red lines, and even now, after two wars of, of genocidal attempts and war crimes, even after Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court, they still continue and they still have intent to destroy us and attack others. On the other hand, it's clear to us that when we have sufficient weapons on the battlefield, we liberate when the sanctions are strengthened and Russia is isolated, it deprives them from the opportunity to conduct this. And then with President Zelensky's peace formula, which is a diplomatic effort now being 
discussed and supported by, by more, more than 80 countries. We also provide a UN rules-based and statute-based approach on how we can actually get to last, uh, lasting, just, and 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 uh, uh, peace. Mm-hmm. And it could be done. Now it just will require a lot of work and and effort and heroism from Ukrainian people. And we are doing it, and we will keep be doing it. But I'm sure if we can stay together, all of us as friends and allies, we can get there faster. Were you satisfied with the sanctions package that came out this week by President Biden? Something like 500 it, sanctions against Russia? It was very strong. It was the largest number of sanctions in one package. I was specifically happy to see the business advisory, which clearly sends, sends a message to business on and putting Russia in, in the same uh, category of countries like Iran and others with regard to doing or I better say not doing business with them. Uh, of course, there is still more we can do. So we really are grateful for the sanctions. Uh, but in Ukraine, we still believe that adding 10 banks is great. Thank you for that. But we have to sanction all uh, Russian banking and financial system. I will uh, uh, finish with this. And, and I know that, um, you know, Senator Schumer, a lot of lawmakers have made these trips to Ukraine to meet with President Zelensky and others. Um, do you think they can come back as they come back to the United States, sort of describe uh, what the conditions there are, that, that it will unlock this this stalemate in Congress and, and get this aid package approved? We invite everyone to, to travel to Ukraine because it allows them to see with their own eyes the horrors of the war, the horrible uh, attacks and war crimes that Russians were doing, but also the resilience of of Ukrainian people and our devotion to winning this war, reforming our country, winning the peace, becoming self-sustainable again, and be not a burden, but be a solution to so many global uh, problems, and also be a reliable partner and friend to our friends and allies like the United States. Madam Ambassador, I very much appreciate your time. I know it has been uh, a a busy time for you, and and my best to you, and and certainly your government and the Ukrainian people in the, uh, the days and weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, and God bless America for all the support. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? 
from finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience. Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. When is the last time you had jury duty? For most Americans, it can be as often as once every two years. But for some U.S. senators, they'll be called to serve on a jury for the third time in about four years. After the House of Representatives narrowly approved two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas earlier this month, they named nearly a dozen impeachment managers who will present their case to the Senate. Senators will be administered a specific oath sworn in as jurors in a trial to determine if Mayorkas will be convicted and removed from office. Here's how that sounded in the 2021 impeachment trial of former President Trump. You will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws. So help you God. No one covering Congress today has covered an impeachment of a cabinet secretary. Mayorkas is just the second member of a cabinet ever impeached, the first since War Secretary William Belknap faced a Senate trial in 1876. But those of us who have been around at least a little bit have experienced high-stakes impeachment trials, covering two for former President Trump in 2020 and 2021 in the impeachment trial of former President Clinton in 1999. Still, this up coming impeachment trial for Secretary Mayorkas will look familiar. Well, it is uh, pretty similar to what you usually see with an impeachment trial for the president. And the reason it's similar is because the the Senate back in the 1970s put together a a manual and and adopted this as Senate impeachment rules, the way they handle impeachment. Chad Pergram is the senior congressional correspondent for Fox News. You know, people only think of these big impeachments that we've had the past couple of years with former President Trump in both 2020 and 2021. And then, of course, we had President Clinton uh, in 1999. There were a couple of other uh, I- recent impeachments. You had uh, former Congressman uh, Alcee Hastings when he was a federal judge in 1989. Also, Walter Nixon, who was a federal judge. They were impeached and convicted and removed. And you also had Thomas Porteous, who was a federal judge in 2009. But a lot of people don't remember those because it just doesn't you know, capture as much attention. The process, though, is the same. The House must adopt an article, or in this case, articles of impeachment, and then they appoint impeachment managers. These are the 11 House members who will bring over the articles of impeachment, and we believe that will happen sometime in the next couple of days here. They are presented to the Senate, and what happens is that you have the, uh, the sergeant-at-arms from the House and the acting clerk of the House. In this case, they walk across the rotunda. There's a little bit of, of ceremony here. And they are formally presented to the Senate. Oftentimes, the the 100 senators are seated and the sergeant-at-arms on the Senate side. Keep in mind, this is a bicameral activity here. Karen Gibson is the Senate sergeant-at-arms. And she will announce who these people are here and make a proclamation. And she shall say, quote, all persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment. Well, the House of Representatives is exhibiting to the Senate of the United States articles of impeachment against Alejandro Nicholas Mayorkas. And then according to the Senate impeachment rules, what happens is they actually read the articles. They are presented across the Senate desk. And then uh, I'm told that they'll do this by the book. On day two is when you're supposed to come back. 
at one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and again, that's according to the rules here. And mm-hmm. you swear in all 100 senators as jurors and they don't actually debate. They listen to the prosecutors, the House managers, and they listen to the defense, whoever Alejandro Mayorkas mm-hmm. uh, puts together to defend him. And then eventually they either vote up or down whether or not to convict or remove somebody. It takes 67 votes. But you could have, and we've been told this, you could have a motion to dismiss uh, rather quickly. The other thing that's important here is that the chief justice of the United States, John Roberts, does not preside because this is not the president or the vice president. This is a cabinet official. We've not dealt with a cabinet official being impeached since the 1870s. And so in this case, Patty Murray, who is the president pro tem of the Senate, Democrat from Washington, the most senior member of the majority party, she will preside over the Senate trial chair. As I recall, it was the president pro tem who presided over the second impeachment of former President Trump, right? Because he was out of office at that time. The chief justice didn't cross the street. Yes, exactly. And, and so, you, you know, in that case, you know, you've, you've had that. It, it's, yeah. it's not a hard and fast rule. That's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of these proceedings don't start till one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, because, uh, you know, the court, if you know anything about the Supreme Court across right. the street, they have yeah, arguments in they, the morning. They have arguments till noon. So give them a chance to get a bite to eat, get a cup of coffee, use the john, come back and preside over an impeachment trial. Yeah, it's a short commute. Um, let's talk about that short circuit possibility. Um, obviously, it takes 67 votes, as you said, to convict, to remove mm-hmm. somebody from office. That has uh, never happened in our country's history, at least like with a cabinet official or a uh, federal a judges. Yes, has, yeah, has, has happened. happened with I judges. mentioned, um, you know, Porteous and others. Yeah, if they. If somebody puts forward a motion, I imagine it would have to be a senator to dismiss. Yes, it does. Is that done right away? And is that a supermajority or is that just 51? Once you get into the trial, in other words, day two and the senators are, uh, are jurors, you could have somebody move to, uh, to table or dismiss or, or something else. Uh, in this case, we probably presume it would be Chuck Schumer, uh, the Democratic leader, the majority leader. If you go back on other impeachment trials, uh, if you go back to the, the Clinton impeachment trial in 1999, you had Robert Byrd, the legendary senator from West Virginia, the former Senate Majority Leader, uh, he moved uh, to dismiss. In, in uh, one of uh, President Trump's impeachment trials, you had Rand Paul, the Republican senator from, from Kentucky, who wanted to move to table, to set aside uh, these articles. There's another option available here, too. You can also send this to a committee. You can create a special committee mm. to investigate. And that's what happened in some of these other impeachments, uh, certainly with Alcee Hastings and Walter Nixon, in the late 1980s. And then they came up with their recommendations, came back to the Senate and presented uh, you know, their case. And then they ultimately voted to remove both Hastings and Nixon. But that motion, that's just a simple majority? It is just a simple majority. 67 okay. votes. The two thirds only applies to removal and conviction. And remember, especially in President Trump's second impeachment trial, that was very important because, uh, you know, you had people like Mitch McConnell who had spoken out uh, against the former president who did not vote to convict, but you had others like uh, Mitt Romney, you had others like, uh, you know, Richard Burr, the former senator from North mm-hmm. Carolina. You know, they were they had had enough, you know. And, and so even though President Trump was out of office at that stage, but that was the whole idea. Yeah. You know, the, the other provision was that that would preclude him from holding office in the future, which, of course, now yeah. is an issue. That was a majority vote to convict, but not a, a supermajority. That's right. That's right. That's um, right. 
So, I mean, I'm just trying to sort of the math here seems really in the favor of of Mayorkas, especially to mm-hmm. short circuit it. I mean, if every Democrat votes to table it or, or dismiss it or, or move it somewhere else, this is going to be a pretty quick process. It could be. Now, now, now here's what we don't know. Chuck Schumer has not alluded to what he might do. And there are some political calculations in this, too. Surprise, surprise. I mean, let, let's be you know frank about it. The entire process to impeach is political over in the House of Representatives. But the idea is that Chuck Schumer, they might want to say, all right, we want to at least do our duty and make sure that we are being serious about this and not be accused of just sloughing this off. So we actually hear from them for a a day or two or something like that. Keep in mind, this is going to be coming right as we're about to shut down the government. Okay, I'll say that again. March 1st is the first deadline here. Yeah, so here we go again, Jared. So that's going to be a consideration in terms of the the traffic and the time on the Senate floor. Okay, Uh, so they want to be serious. Also, uh, one of the impeachment managers is Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia, who kind of initiated uh, this process. And of course, she's wanted to impeach practically every member of the Biden administration, if she could, uh, has said as much, uh, frankly. And so is it in the favor of the Democrats to let her speak? Because, as you know, Mm. she is prone to say and do some outlandish things. Does she stray from the rules of decorum in the Senate in an impeachment trial or say things that, uh, you know, they kind of get a soundbite that uh, the Democrats can then turn around on the Republicans and say, all right, uh, we understand there's concern about the border. But can you believe this, you know, and point to that? And then they paint every Republican as yes. an acolyte of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. And it's kind of yeah. what the Democrats started to do with the comment by Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas on the floor uh, last year, where he said, you know, can you point to any one thing that this Republican majority has done? You know, and of course, <laughs> that's a problem that's bedeviled the Republican House during the entire Congress. So do you get some some soundbite there that resonates with that or, 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 or you know, the, the live television coverage of Marjorie Taylor Greene on the floor? Does that somehow work and backfire against the Republicans. Now, there is political risk in this for the Democrats, too. I was about to ask. I mean, there there are some some tight Senate races that Democrats are defending. um, And and I just don't know if, you know, they would be in a position to to want to short circuit this. Exactly. And, And here's the problem. So if you move to dismiss or move to table or have a straight up or down vote on conviction, which, as you say, probably won't happen because, you know, even if you had all Republican senators vote yes, you're still 18, 19 votes shy, you know, presumably, um, of getting to two-thirds. Senators from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, John Tester, Montana, uh, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, Jackie Rosen in Nevada. These are Democratic senators in battleground or reddish states, all with competitive reelection bids. And you could see a situation where the Republicans turn this around on these Democrats and point to that roll call vote, whether it's a a vote to actually dismiss the charges, to exonerate, what have you, and say, aha, we know the border is a problem uh, and they are not taking it seriously. And here's why. All we have to do is look at that vote. And here's what they said after the trial. See, see, they engineer a soundbite, too, out of this. See, there's a lot of political opportunity (laughs) in an impeachment trial for both sides especially when it comes to an issue that is, is as seminal as the border, uh, especially in an election year. Yeah, and we've seen the importance that uh, the border and, and the politics around a solution in legislation yes. played even just um, a couple of weeks ago in that special election um, on Long Island uh, in Queens. Um, 
So let me finish with this, and that is the role uh, of Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, he doesn't have to be there. Uh, do no. we know what role, if any, he may play in his own impeachment trial? As right now, we don't. I mean, you know, usually the um, you know, this is not a court of law. This is a separate process here. Uh, I thought it was interesting during the last impeachment trial, uh, one of President uh, Trump's uh, defense attorneys said, you know, he was going to have to take when there was a question of having witnesses. And he said, we're going to have to do all these depositions. He wanted to hear from Speaker Pelosi. He went down the laundry list. He said, and we're going to do it like every other deposition in my office in Philadelphia, is what he said. Because <laughs> he was from Philadelphia. He was, a, he was a Philadelphia lawyer, Jared. Yeah. Yes. And so. Proud Philadelphia and, lawyer. <laughs> that's right. So lo and behold, but that's, you know, that's how you do things in the court of law. That's not how you do things necessarily here in the Senate for a Senate trial. Uh, I don't know that the Senate would have gone for that, frankly, had it gotten to that stage. And it was getting to that stage, but they might not have actually said, no, no, you have to depose the witnesses up here, et cetera, so on and so forth. That said, you could have a question about that, about witnesses. Uh, but uh, again, it, this is not a regular court of law. <laughs> The rules are laid out very vaguely uh, in the Constitution. What I have talked about here is something that the Senate adopted back in the mid-70s. So they had ground rules for an impeachment trial, and that's what they go off of. And they've done several of these now over the past few years and even back into the 1980s. So there is some structure, but it's not a regular court of law. uh, And the defendant, so to speak, does not necessarily have to be there like they would be in a court of law under conventional circumstances. All right. Well... We are going to uh, see something again that that we have not seen. I mean, you and I have never seen it. The country's only seen it once before, um, and that was not televised. So we will get a our first look at, at an impeachment trial for a, a cabinet secretary. Jared, uh, I know you were looking for an anecdote from me covering the impeachment trial of William Belknap. The no, I know, yeah, because you you've been covering Congress yeah. since the 1870s, right? Yes, yes, right here. <laughs> and, and and I even said back then, beware the Ides of August. That's right. Chad Pergram, a pleasure as always. Thank you. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown, South Carolina was the center of Republican politics this weekend. Mike Emanuel will talk with Congresswoman Nancy Mace about the state of the presidential race and if the House will come together on Ukraine aid, a border deal, and avoiding a partial government shutdown on March 1st. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.